So this Advent season, our sermon series, uh, we are noting how the Old Testament so wonderfully anticipates the coming of our Lord. Christianity was not put together around a campfire by a bunch of defeated disciples who were wondering, what do we do now? When we ponder the intrinsic connection between Jesus' birth and his death, his advent and his suffering, Bethlehem and Calvary, we bask in the wonder of it all. Emmanuel, God with us. We gain such comfort and courage in knowing that God walks with us in our grief, in our many trials. And he is indeed making all things new as we live in the now but not yet time period. This morning we'll speak to what I consider to be a very underrepresented aspect of the Advent story. God's unfolding drama of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, and that is angels. Angelic involvement goes far beyond what we see in the gospel accounts. It is intriguing, it is important to see the roles that angels play from the beginning to the end in God's word. As we examine the Hebrew scriptures this morning will follow their involvement all the way into and through the New Testament. God's unfolding drama of redemption. Not just in the gospel accounts. So let's begin with a very, very brief overview of angels in the Bible. We call this angelology. That actually is a word. Um, But now you can impress your friends with it. Um, So exactly what are angels? Who are they and what do they do? Angels are spirit beings who are often and most often right in the presence of God himself. And they do his bidding. They worship God. They declare. They speak to his holiness and his glory. Angels are God's messengers. Now Ezekiel and Isaiah tell us of a terrible event in the angelic ranks. One of the angels named Lucifer developed a proud and an arrogant heart. And he wanted the praise and the worship that is due God alone Well, he wanted that for himself. They are known as the dreadful five I will statements from Isaiah chapter 14. Speaking of him, the scripture, God says this, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights and the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
He is the father of lies. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the personification of evil itself. The world walks after his ways. He is the tempter and he masquerades as an angel of light. It seems that there were about a third of the angelic hosts that followed him in his rebellion and fall. And when you read, for example, of demons in scripture, they belong to this number. When you read of spiritual warfare in the heavenly realms, Ephesians chapter 6, it's referring to them. Now, there are good angels. We call them elect angels in scripture. Angels that dwell in the presence of God, that are his messengers, that do his bidding. In fact, the very word angel means messenger. They constantly, night and day, declare the glory of God and his holiness. They support us, the people of God. Now, these are the ones that we're focusing on today. Throughout scripture, you will hear of different types or ranks of angels, such as the cherubim and the seraphim. Think of that old hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. You might have heard of Michael, the archangel. Of course, we know of Gabriel as well. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a very special angel that we encounter called the angel of the Lord. As we have seen in the past number of months, this is a direct reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. That is, Jesus appearing before his birth in Bethlehem. It is fascinating to see his appearances in the Hebrew scriptures. He had not yet taken up a body like we have. Remember this special angel. We will reference him in just a little bit. So let's walk through the unfolding drama of redemption. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 3. As we have seen this month, the first two chapters in your Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, they are creation without sin, without death, without the curse. Genesis 3, everything changes. When sin was introduced into creation, God banished Adam from working in the land of the garden and placed cherubim, an order of angels, to guard the entrance with flaming sword. How tragic that the beautiful garden designed for Adam and Eve to enjoy was now completely off limits. Sin had entered, and along with it, the earth was cursed. Remember this. Paradise was lost in a garden. In God's stunning work of reconciling sinners to himself, the redemption that we see in God's word would ultimately also take place in a garden. In fact, this work is what summarizes Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 in your Bible. God reversing what was lost. What was lost in the garden will be reclaimed in a garden. 
We're tracking angelic participation in the unfolding drama of redemption. Why did Jesus come? Well, God was reconciling sinners to himself. Jesus would become a curse on the tree so I, so you, could be adopted into his family. Just as angels were present in the consequences of sin, so they would be in the redemption of sinners. It is breathtaking to see their involvement in Scripture as God rescues us from our sin. So let's tie some events together so you can see their involvement from beginning to end, maybe from a fresh perspective. We know that Jesus was, when Jesus was born, angels were present. An angel told Zechariah and Elizabeth that, they would be pre- that she would be pregnant with John the Baptist. Gabriel told the unwed teen Mary that she would carry a child. Thankfully, an angel was also dispatched to Joseph to help him understand what was going on. What we see in God's word is the most beautiful and stunning movement of redemption. And it shows us how marvelously scripture all fits together. With angels present throughout. So remember, paradise lost in a garden. Ultimately, the Israelites would wander and eventually die in the wilderness. That's the trajectory. Garden to the wilderness. In the New Testament, that is flipped. Wilderness to the garden. Redemption is all about reversing that movement. Angels, God's messengers, are intertwined in the fabric of redemption all throughout God's word. So let's go back and look at that special occurrence, a special occurrence of the angel of the Lord. Genesis chapter 18, I invite you to turn there. As noted earlier, the angel of the Lord is a reference to Christ before his first coming. He appeared as an angel as he had not yet taken on a human body. We find a remarkable appearance of the angel of the Lord in Genesis, making a visit to Abraham and Sarah. Recall that the angel of the Lord told Sarah that he would return the next year and she would be pregnant. This is Genesis 18, beginning in verse 14 and 15. She laughed... Noting the obvious that she was far beyond childbearing age. In a stunning exchange, Christ asks Abraham why his wife laughed. You see, she was in another tent. She didn't think anyone could hear her. But she didn't know who she was dealing with. She denied laughing, being afraid, but he affirmed... Yes, you actually did laugh. That beautiful response, nothing shall be impossible for the Lord. Now, don't sleep on this moment. 
Jesus himself was ultimately prophesying his own birth. The angel of the Lord speaking would be the one born through Abraham's seed that Sarah never believed would happen in the first place some 42 generations later. Indeed, Isaac would be born to Sarah in her old age. Now let's follow along. In a perplexing turn of events, God tested Abraham's faith. And required Isaac to be sacrificed to the Lord. You know the account. Just as Abraham was actually prepared to follow through with this. An angel of the Lord burst through and said stop. He halted the operation. Abraham was ready to sacrifice his one and only Son, one of those very hills would later be renamed in Roman times Calvary. That very location, there was a purpose behind that illustration where God would sacrifice his one and only son for us. Indeed, Abraham's offspring would form the Jewish people and they would languish under Egyptian slavery for hundreds of years. When the time came for the Jews' redemption from slavery, freedom, you remember, they took the blood of the lamb, they captured the blood of the lamb and they applied it to the doorpost of their home. And when they walked through that that door frame, that door, they never returned to slavery. They were covered by the blood of the Lamb. They were free. As they began that exodus, as they began that their journey to the promised land, who was going before them? This beautiful picture of Redemption. God's angel was leading them out of captivity. Every time we observe communion together, we are actually referencing this event. The Passover. In which the Lamb of God, the, the, who, saved, who is for the sins of the world, has come. Now, We progress through Israel's troubled history. Out of the wilderness came the voice of one calling. You find this in the book of Isaiah chapter 40. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. God is preparing us hundreds of years before he came for the advent, the coming of Christ. The voice is crying from the wilderness. Let the drama of redemption begin. Because now the the garden to the wilderness will become the wilderness to the garden. Our redemption. Go to the New Testament in your mind. Jesus 
as soon as he was baptized, was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Forty days of fasting. Humanly speaking, this was fierce. Jesus emerged clean, never once giving way to temptation. He was tested and he remained the sinless son of God to bear the sins of the world. That was such a pivotal moment, a crucial time in his life and ministry where he was born, as we know, sinless. But he was tested and emerged without fault. The one who would bear our sins. Now, when he was in the wilderness... Who was there supporting him during his distress? Angels. Mark tells us that he was with the wild animals alone, attended to by angels. Fast forward now to Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he surely bore. The weight of the wor- the sins of the world on his soul. Remember the, tr- the progression that is taking place. He started his ministry in the wilderness. And now, and now, leading up to his betrayal, he's in a garden. Once again, we find ourselves in a garden. Jesus, our Savior, is reclaiming that which was lost in a garden. Now, you know the drama of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays fervently, asking for this cup to pass. If there is any possible way that we can do this another way. Let it be so. As Jesus agonized in prayer, the disciples, well, they were asleep. They were were out. Jesus was all alone as he considered in great trepidation The cup that was before him. When he would not only bear but become our sins. That perfect unbroken fellowship that he had had enjoyed forever before this. Would be dramatically shattered. Who came to comfort him? An angel. At that pivotal moment where Jesus in his deep, in his humanity was full of trepidation at what was ahead because he knew what he was facing. It wasn't the fact that he was dying. It was the fact of carrying our sins. In fact, it is such an important question to ask. Why did Jesus dread his death so much? 
so many of his followers throughout the ages literally have joyfully led their, laid down their lives for him. Some even singing hymns as they were burned at the stake. Why was Jesus in such agony? Why was he sweating drops of blood? Friends, there is only one answer. One answer and one alone. Jesus knew that he was to take up the sins of the world. He knew that though he was immaculately perfect, he would become a curse on the tree. Never be distracted by those who would detract from the real reason why Jesus came. Though it is unpleasant to think about Jesus pinned to a cruel Roman cross, covered in his own blood, for those of us being saved, it is a sweet reminder of God's unrelenting love for us. We see the wisdom of God at the cross because we know we could not solve this ourselves. And it was an angel that was there to support Christ in such an agonizing moment. Now, my own conversion story, how I became a Christian when I was young, centers around this very fact. When I was younger, my mom would read to me every single night. She would read to me from a children's Bible. On one occasion, we were reading through the Gospel of Mark. And I was growing in admiration of this character, Jesus. I mean, how can you not like him? He helped people. He served people. He healed them. He fed people that were hungry. He never once disobeyed God. I mean, I, as a young boy, was really becoming to like him. And then we got to the end of the Gospel of Mark. And they killed him. I was so angry. I was so indignant. And I was like, well, how, can, how could you possibly kill Jesus? This is awful. Those people are terrible. My mom, in all her wisdom, turned and simply said, Colin, it was for your sins, for my sins, that Jesus died on the cross. And that's when the lines crossed for me where I understood why Jesus died. I mean, I was with my mom. It's not as if I had to think long and hard about my own sin because there was my caretaker, if you will, who could easily remind me of all my little antics even at a young age. But friends... It became so personal to me that very evening, that moment. Just like the Apostle Paul, I believed and declared that Jesus died for my sins. That he bore my sins on the cross. Saints, as we briefly follow the path of Jesus' suffering that week, 
We know that he was betrayed in a garden and he died in a garden, reclaiming that which was lost in a garden. But please note, from his betrayal, there is no reference to angels supporting him. He would die alone in every sense of the word. Accursed on the cross. When Jesus was resurrected in a garden, remember he was mistaken for the gardener. We know that angels were the mouthpiece of God. Angels were present where the Roman guards once stood. Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? From there, Scripture tells us that an angel was present with the disciples upon Jesus' ascension. He will, they will participate in his return, be present with Jesus as he sits as judge, and so much more. Revelation shows angels joining the everlasting worship of God who lives forever. In fact, Hebrews describes our conversion in terms of coming to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. There's one passage that I want you to look out, look at as we close out this morning. Turn to your right to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3, all the way down to verse 9, we have one of the most theologically rich and riveting and beautiful passages about our salvation, about redemption, of Jesus dying for sinners, of the living hope that we have, of the resurrection, about being born again into a living hope. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But look at verse 10. We'll read through verse 12. Concerning this salvation, which he just spoke about, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So these guys in the Old Testament were writing as God led them to write, but they're trying to figure it out themselves. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and me. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now watch this. Things into which angels long to look. The subject of salvation is riveting for angels. They stand in the presence of God and they voice his praise. Night and day they declare the holiness of God and they ascribe him glory. They surround the throne and they worship him. But listen to me, there is one song they will never sing. The song of the redeemed. Angels look to the, they long to look into the story of Jesus and God saving sinners because that's not their story. 
They have not been redeemed. Jesus did not come for them. He came for us. Oh, they might sing of redemption about us, but not for them. It's not their story. They don't know what it's like to be lost and then to be found. To experience a love that you cannot even describe that takes us with all our sin and filth and cleans us up and accepts us unconditionally and forever. And there's Jesus suffering on the cross to make it possible. My friends, never, never, never lose sight of the behold aspect of Advent. Come and see what God has done. The unfolding drama of redemption attended to by angels who along with prophets never fully understood what they were speaking to. Never, ever Take it for granted. The angels long to look in and to fully understand and to to know what that feels like to be redeemed. That's our story. And that love that God has shown us, that has been shown shown abroad in our hearts, that should flow to the people around us. Because how we treat people is perhaps the best view of God's love that they will ever see. So I'd like to leave you with a very specific and actionable item for this season, but really for life in general. Connected to, but not directly to what we've just been speaking about. In Jesus' life and ministry, as you know, he performed many miracles. When you read those accounts carefully, you'll discover that there's a pattern. The majority of the, of the miracles that Jesus performed were interruptions. That is, Jesus was doing something and then he was interrupted by someone who had a pressing need. Like that time the guy was lowered down through the roof. That was technically not expected. Why do I mention this? You will see the rhythm of Jesus is attending to people who have needs all around him. And of course, it was always in his plan, but he would disrupt the set plans that he was involved in in that moment. Why do I mention this? If you're like me, you have your plans. And when you're in the middle of doing something, it's not easy to break away. If we want to live like Christ, to love like him, to serve like Christ. Take those interruptions. Look for them. Years ago, I preached on margin in our lives. To the best of our ability, build in some margin so that we can indeed see those not as disruptions, but opportunities To be Christ to those around us. Let's bow and prepare our hearts for prayer this morning.
Indeed, we sit in holy wonder and awe. We see what the Lord has done. We saw that Christ came. We see that he is with us. We see that he is not alone. But it's not just that he's with us. But that he did something while he was here. If you are here and you have never turned to the Lord and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says today is the day of your salvation. Don't put that off any further. The entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is all about the unfolding drama of redemption. Sinners being saved by the grace of God being reconciled to him and now living for him, for his glory and not our own. Salvation is a free gift. Salvation from our sins. It's a free gift. It's not by our own merit or works, but humbling ourselves and seeing the need that we have and casting ourselves completely upon Jesus. Who he is and what he has done for us. If that's you, you can call out right now in the quietness of your heart. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of your son. Lord, in our sorrows this month, in our griefs, in our challenges, and in our busyness, help us to set aside time to commune with you, to be encouraged, supported, and refreshed. And let us be the hands and feet of Christ here within this congregation and to those around us. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.